1: Hello, and welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. We hope that God speaks to you today as we continue our study verse by verse, chapter by chapter, through the Bible, with Senior Pastor Will Ramirez. Today, as we continue our study in the book of 1 Samuel, once again Saul goes after David. Once again, God puts him at David's mercy. And once again, David does not strike. Same old story? Not quite. Not quite. We'll pick it up in 1 Samuel chapter 26, verse 1. The title of the message is, Two Irreconcilable Hearts.
2: All right, 1 Samuel chapter 26. The theme of 1 Samuel is lessons from the heart. And uh, we're going to learn an important lesson, not necessarily one from positive situations. This chapter is very similar to chapter 24, because remember chapter 24 is where Saul came out hunting David, and Saul ended up coming into David's cave to relieve himself, and David had an opportunity to kill Saul, did not. We're going to find a similar situation here. So the question, of course, should be, well, since we've already kind of heard that story, why is this one included? Like, why do this? We already know David's not going to kill Saul, right? Well, there are some important differences in these two chapters, and they give us an indication of David's changed heart, and not in a good way. David, if you remember last time, he was trying to reconcile with Saul. He was trying to fix the situation. But this time, we're going to find out he just wants Saul to leave him alone. Because this time, the encounter doesn't happen because Saul walks into David's cave. David seeks out Saul and goes right into the heart of his war camp. So, chapter 26, verse 1. It says, And the Ziphites came unto Saul to Gabeah, saying, Does not David hide himself in the hill of Hakilah, which is before Jeshimon? And then Saul arose and went down to the wilderness of Ziph, having 3,000 chosen men of Israel with him to seek David in the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul pitched in the hill of Hakkalah, which is before Jeshimon, by the way, but David abode in the wilderness. And he saw that Saul came after him into the wilderness. David therefore sent out spies and understood that Saul was come in very deed. This is the second time that these men, these Ziphites, the people living in the town of Ziph, have betrayed David's location to Saul. I don't know why they had it out for David. Perhaps they were just very loyal to Saul. Perhaps they hoped to curry Saul's favor, and perhaps they were just good citizens who'd been misinformed by David's enemies, because it doesn't tell us their motive. We don't know. However, this is a good warning to us about getting involved in condemning someone based on secondhand information. So many people are angry today based on information that has been disseminated to them and not first-hand experience. So many things are discussed as facts, and they're all, people are all bent out of shape about it when they don't have any reality of it at all. Be so very, very careful what you listen to. Proverbs 18, verse 8, there's an interesting verse. I think it's very applicable to our current culture. This is the words of a talebearer are as wounds and they go down into the innermost parts of the belly. In Leviticus 19, verse 16, the Lord says this, He says, you shall not go up and down as a tailbearer among your people, neither shall you stand against the blood of your neighbor, because I am the Lord. I'm the one that knows everything. I'm the one that knows the truth. We had this song that we'd play for the kids when they were little. Be careful what your little ears hear. Be careful what your little eyes see. That doesn't change when we get big eyes and big ears. We still need to be careful. Don't become wounded deep in your soul because you aren't guarding your ears. Now, this hill that they see David in, the hill of Hakila, which is before Jeshimon, is a desert hilltop just north of Carmel. That's Abigail's old home. And remember, Abigail has now become David's wife. So it's possible that having heard that David took a wife from Carmel and that David's now in Hakilah that Saul saw David's presence there as an invasion of sorts. He's setting up some type of cabal. He's got his multiple wives now, his harem in a sense. He's setting up a rival kingdom, and I can't have that. It's possible that he thought David was no longer content to live far off in the desert cliffs by the Dead Sea, and now he's going to do something. And while it doesn't tell us the exact reason why Saul decides to come out and hunt David, the truth is Saul just can't let it lie. Whatever the reason, whatever worry he has, he just can't let it lie. He still has this need to control the kingdom, to show no sign of weakness lest it all be stripped from him. And so, verse 2 says, Saul arose and he went down to the wilderness of Ziph, having 3,000 chosen men of Israel with him to seek David in the wilderness of Ziph. That's the same exact thing he did last time. He took 3,000 elite soldiers. These may not be the same men, but this is an elite strike force just like the last time. And he's going down there to seek David. The word seek means to call someone to account for their actions, to sanction someone for not meeting a standard. The plan is to bring David to justice. It's hard not to shake my head when I read this, because I think, how stubborn can you be, Saul? How arrogant can you be? David swore an oath last time that he wouldn't bring any harm to you or to anyone in your family. He has no designs on the kingdom, not when you're a king. But that's what happens when your heart is in an irreconcilable place. Saul's heart at this time is completely callous to the idea of doing things differently. Didn't start that way, did it? Remember when Samuel way back, way back when Samuel confronted Saul and he said, when you were little in your own eyes, did not the Lord raise you up? There was a time when Saul was pliable to the Lord, when he followed the Lord's lead. How did it get this way? Well, it became this way by Saul's repeated refusal to be reconciled to God's discipline in his life. Listen, I tell my kids this. I say, I do this now when I'm disciplining them. I do this now because when you get older, someone else is going to do it in a much more important situation. Someone else is going to sit you down and say, hey, you need to do your job better. Someone's going to sit you down and say, hey, you can be a better parent, or hey, you can be a better husband or a better wife. And if your same attitude is, oh, I'm not, you know, nobody gets me. If your same mindset and attitude is going to be like the rebellious teenager or the attitude 5 five-year-old, then you're never going to grow. You're just going to stay the same. We need to be open, ultimately, not just to people's discipline, but the Lord's discipline. We read it in our scripture reading in Hebrews chapter 12. It's a part of Christianity, if you're not getting disciplined, then you should be worried because it means you might not be his. God spanks his kids because he loves us. Hebrews 12.12 tells us what to do. Wherefore, lift up the hands which hang down and the feeble knees, You know, sometimes we'll discipline our kids, you know, and we move around. I say, listen, that's not the right response to this. I know it stinks. We read earlier, no chastening for the present is is joyful, but it's painful, all right? It's painful to hear. It's painful when me and Bev have a a serious conversation. She points out a flaw in my life that I didn't know was there. That's painful. Nobody likes to hear you have failed or "You, you are not in a good place in this area of your life. No one likes to hear that. And certainly when the Lord deals with us because he knows the deepest, darkest part of our hearts. And he says, this is not like my son. This needs to change. It hurts. There are times in my life when the Lord has dealt with me in areas and I think, Lord, I thought I learned this lesson already. And the Lord's like, well, no, 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 you need to learn it again. And you think, Lord, am I I still a child? Have I not learned anything? But at some point you just got to lift up the hands which hang down and the feeble knees and get walking again. Make straight paths for your feet, lest that which is lame be turned out of the way. Yes, you've, you've turned an ankle, you know, and that's why the Lord's talking to you. You can keep trying to go on and do what you're doing, but the Lord's like, your ankle's not working right. Let me heal it. Let me fix it. The problem is, if you don't respond to that, well, then that which is lame gets completely dislocated. Instead, rather, let it be healed, the writer says. Follow peace with all men without and holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. Looking diligently, lest any man fall short of the grace of God. God has given us so much grace. He desires so much more for us than we want for ourselves most of the time. Lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby not just you be defiled, but many be defiled. There have been many Christians who have wrecked other people's lives because they just won't take the pill that God's trying to give them. They won't take the medicine that the Lord is trying to give them the Lord doesn't taste good. I don't want it. I don't need it. I'm fine on my own. And then what happens? They get bitter. They get bitter towards the Lord because he keeps trying to go to the same thing. And they end up defiling others. This is Saul, the man who would never take his medicine. And his heart's become so calloused. Verse 3, it says that Saul pitched in that hill of Hakela, which is before Jeshua, by the roadside. So Not exactly where David was, but pretty close to where David was, where the Ziphites had claimed, at least, David and his men were. And David, it tells us, though, he was not actually there. The intel was incorrect. David had only been there temporarily, and then he had moved back to the desert. But David abode in the wilderness. And so David, the word there, saw, it does not mean that David saw that Saul came after him into the wilderness, it means David was shown. David got news that Saul was back again chasing. And so David sent scouts to see if it was true. And so David therefore sent out spies. And then he understood that Saul was indeed come to find him. Now, every other time Saul came out to chase David, what did David and his men do? They ran, they fled, but they don't run this time this time, David goes towards Saul with a very clear plan to send the king a message. Verse 5. David arose and he came to the place where Saul had pitched. And David beheld the place where Saul lay and Abner, the son of Ner, the captain of his host. And Saul lay in the, the trench, that it means the camp that's there. Uh, he lay in the encampment and the people pitched around about him. So then David answered and said to Ahimelech the Hittite, and to Abishai the son of Zariah, two of his men that were with him, brother to Joab, saying, who will go down with me to Saul and to the camp? And Abishai said, I will go down with you. So David, he is now coming towards Saul's army, and he oversees this camp where Saul and his army are laid out. And it mentions here that he sees where Saul's sleeping, and he sees Abner, the son of Ner. Abner is the captain of Saul's army. Now, chapter 24 didn't tell us if Abner was present in the last attempt to find David, but the fact that he's here this time shows uh, David that Saul is serious enough in his attempt to bring the captain of his entire army with him. And yet David still is not deterred in his plan. He picks out the spot where Saul's sleeping, uh, surrounded by his soldiers, and he presses forward, and he asks two of his men, we don't know how many David took with him, but he asks two of them, if one of them will go down, the first guy is Abimelech the Hittite. We don't learn anything else about him in Scripture. The second guy here is Abishai, the son of Zeriah, the brother of Joab. This is our first meeting with the boys of David's sister Zeriah. Uh, they are going to become quite famous as we study through First and 2 Samuel. They also are going to become quite the headache to David. Abishai is. A brood of a man. Uh, He was a very capable soldier, but he was a brood of a man. He was fiercely loyal to David. He's the one that later on when Shimei is cursing David from the hill and throwing rocks at him when he's fleeing from Absalom, and Habashai says, you want me to put a spear through that guy and shut him up? I mean, this is a no-nonsense kind of guy. He has no qualms about killing people. He is a very capable soldier, and he is intensely, fiercely loyal to his uncle David. He stays with David uh, when the rest of the family is you know, trying to stay safe from Saul in the country of Moab. He stays with David. And although he doesn't fully understand, or actually completely misunderstands David's reasoning to go down to the camp, he offers to go. He has no problem walking down into a camp of 3,000 soldiers when it's just two of them. And so he says, I'll go. And so, verse 7, so David and Abishai came to the people by night, and when they get there, they find something very unexpected. Behold, Saul lay sleeping within the, the trench, the King James says, just inside the encampment. And his spear was stuck in the ground at his bolster. It means his headrest, his pillow. But Abner and the people lay round about him. They're, they're just, there's no guards. Everybody's sleeping. I don't know about you. I, I don't do that. I mean, if I'm, if I'm in a strange place, I, I tend to have a hard time just going to sleep. And these guys are on the hunt for someone that they consider an enemy of the state. I can't imagine they wouldn't at least set a guard when their king is sleeping in their midst. David finds multiple shocking circumstances here. Saul's asleep out in the open, and everyone around him is asleep too. We'll see why later. But from a distance in the camp, they can see that Saul's got his spear right by his pillow. That spear is something that Saul often kept with him. This was the weapon Saul used to try to kill David on multiple occasions. This is the weapon Saul used to try to kill Jonathan when Jonathan stood up for David. This is the weapon that defined Saul's self-willed rule. And I can only imagine what David got stirred up inside of him when he saw that spear sitting by Saul's pillows by his head. I don't know what it stirred up in David, but it certainly stirred up anger in Abishai because he has an idea that seems like the perfect justice for Saul. Verse 8, then said Abishai to David, God has delivered your enemy into your hand this day. Now, therefore, let me smite him, I pray you, with the spear even to the earth at once and I will not smite him the second time. I only need one shot at this, David. I will pin his body to the ground and he won't even twitch after I'm done. I'm you, man, he's a brute of a man. There's at one point in time when these two guys come to David with a plan, and he goes, sons of Zariah, what do I have to do with you? What do you think I am? You think I'm a butcher? They just thought in very practical terms, they did not have any morals when it came to killing somebody. And so he says to David, this day, God has delivered your enemy into your hand. This has to be God, David. There's no other way to explain everyone being asleep right now. And since God must want us to do this, therefore... He says, let me smite him, I pray you. That's, that's a begging word. Please, let me end this with one blow. There won't be a need for a second attack. I'll make it fast, I'll make it final. David, I can end all of the heartache for you right now. That spear that's hunted you down will be the instrument of his immediate death. It'll be the perfect justice. But interestingly enough, David doesn't grant him this request because that's not why David came down into the camp. And David said to Abishai something very interesting. He didn't say don't kill him. He said, do not destroy him. There's a Hebrew phrase, altasketh, altasketh. What's interesting about it and why I bring it up is there are three Psalms that have the title altasketh in front of it, do not destroy. All of those Psalms refer to the time that Saul hunted David, all three of them. Now, if you read those psalms, they are not merciful psalms. That's the one where David asked God to break their teeth, cut their tongues in half. Yeah, it's not a merciful psalm. But they repeat a principle that David lived by in his treatment of Saul. God, you need to deal with my enemies because I won't take matters into my own hands. All three psalms say it. It's fascinating because if you read it and you see the, like most modern English translations will say, Al and then they'll say, do not destroy underneath that. And most of the time when you read it is, oh, David's asking God not to let him be destroyed. No, 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 no. David is writing these songs. He's reminding himself, don't kill him. I know everything within you wants to, but don't, that would be a mistake. That would be wrong. He explains why. For who can stretch forth his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless to, means to go unpunished or to be innocent? Listen, we started talking about it that there are bits of David's life that are cracking right now beneath the weight of his struggles. David is struggling right now. This is not a high note in David's life, this is a struggling time in David's life. But there is a sense when you see him writing these three psalms, you see his response to Abishai here. That David knows if he kills Saul, he'll cross a line where he'll never be the same man. He knows if he does this, he'll never be the same man. And you know what? For all that David is struggling with his situation, that concerned him more than being a fugitive. And thus, he entrusts the Lord to deal with Saul. Verse 10, David said, furthermore, I love this. They're in the middle of an enemy camp and they're just having a conversation. Shows you how asleep these guys are. They're just out. He says, As the Lord lives, the Lord shall smite him, or his day shall come to die, or he shall descend into battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should stretch forth my hand against the Lord's anointed. As true as God is alive, which there's no more true thing out there, he says, Something will happen to Saul. We won't be fugitives forever, nephew. God will keep his promises to me. Now, this response of David does beg a question. Why in the world are you risking your life coming down here then? If it's not to kill Saul. If it's not to stop the enemy who's come after you. Why are you here, David? <laughs> what is your plan? Well, verse 11, he says, but you can't do that for me, but I pray you, you can do this for me. Please do this for me, Abishai. Take thou now the spear that is at his bolster and the crews of water, and then let us go. Can you fetch that spear and grab his jug of water that's down there by him too? And then let's skedaddle. And so it says, so David took the spear. David did not. It's just saying he took it from Abishai. He didn't take it from Saul. Took the spear and the crews of water from Saul's bolster, and they got them away. And no man saw it, nor knew it, neither awaked, for they were all asleep because a deep sleep from the Lord was fallen upon them. This was a supernaturally induced state of heavy sleep. And that explains why David can just walk into the camp. Now, this isn't just a miracle for David. It's also a mercy of God to Saul. See, so how is it a mercy of God that he, Saul was at David's mercy? No, it's a mercy of God to Saul because when Saul woke up, he would know that there was no rational explanation for elite soldiers and trained guards to all fall asleep at the same time he would know that God was trying to get his attention. Which is another sad indictment of Saul's stubborn heart. Can I plead with you? If God is putting speed bumps on your road that you're on right now, please, please don't ignore them. Things didn't have to end the way they did for Saul. And certainly if God's putting speed bumps on your path, then it's so you'll turn around and take a different one. Now, We still don't know why David risked his life to get Saul's spear and his water bottle. Why? Well, verse 13 will inform us. It says, Then David, verse 13, went over to the other side, and he stood on the top of a hill, afar off, a great space being between them. And David cried to the people and to Abner the son of Mer, saying, Answerest thou not, Abner? And Abner answered and said, Who art thou that cries to the king? And David said to Abner, Are you not a valiant man? Who is like unto you in Israel? Wherefore, why then have you not kept the Lord your king? For there came one of the people in to destroy the king, your Lord. This thing is not good that you have done. As the Lord lives, you are worthy to die because you have not kept your master, the Lord's anointed. And now see where the king, you think I'm lying? See now where the king's spear is and the cruise of water that was at his bolster. Now, a couple things to point off before we get to David's accusation. David, this time, gets to the safety of the next hill. It mentions very clearly multiple times he went afar off and a great space is between him and Saul's encampment. Now, that is radically different from the last time that David confronted Saul. Last time, Saul goes into the cave, does his business, David cuts the thing off his robe, and then he follows Saul right out of the cave. They are literally not very far apart, maybe eight, ten feet apart. And that's when David falls on his face, bows down, and pleads with his father-in-law, his king, and his lord He tries to reconcile with him, but that is not the case this time. Last time, David reached out to Saul in the hopes of convincing Saul he meant him no harm, but that is not David's intent this time. David has given up hoping that he and Saul could ever be reconciled, and so he keeps this great space between him, and he has a message he wants to communicate to the king. And so he calls out, and he says to Abner, the son of Mer, "'Do you not answer me, Abner?' Do you have no reply? Apparently, David had been shouting for a while to Saul from that hill. Finally, they start waking up, and Abner's the first one to answer. And finally, he says, Who are you that cries to the king? Probably because of the distance or just the grogginess. Who knows? I don't know why. He just didn't know who was talking. And what's interesting is instead of identifying himself, David calls out Abner for his lax guard. David said to Abner, Are you not a valiant man? The phrase there means, Literally in the Hebrew, it means are you not supposed to be some great warrior who is like you in Israel? You're the captain of the host. Why then have you not kept? Why have you not guarded the Lord your king? For there came one of the people in to destroy the king, your Lord. David, this is clever. David shows how easy it is to twist the facts to create a false narrative. To accuse someone of something absurd because that's how you want to see it. And he says, see, see now where the king's spear is and the cruise of water that was at his bolster. It's right here. I snuck in. I got facts to prove. I got evidence that proves you should be executed as an unfaithful servant to Saul. You're a traitor. And why does David do this? Because these were the same type of arguments people were making against him. They would say, well, if David's innocent, why is he on the run? If he's loyal, why isn't he fighting by Saul's side? It's crazy what you can do with a little bit of evidence, with a few facts twisted.
1: This has been In the Word with Pastor Will Ramirez, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel Orlando app, available on iTunes and Google Play.